welcome back to the Mariner with me, Chris Stamwell Major, and uh, been a bit of a gap there. Uh, where have I been? Um, I have been sailing. I have been off and away for the first time really since February when we did the Caribbean 600 on the Volvo 65. For the first time, I've actually been out on the ocean doing what it is that I'm meant to be doing, and it was an absolutely fantastic trip. I'd I'd like to say firstly that I actually recorded about five hours of podcast and was feeling pretty excited to come back with some uh, unique, uh, some unique content for you. And then I discovered, hey, you wouldn't know this, but uh, SD cards can break. Have you ever heard of this before? Yeah. So I left the SD card in the side of my laptop when I put my laptop into my like soft briefcase thing that I go through the airport. And uh, lo and behold, it got to the other end and the SD card, like the internals of it was snapped. So totally gutted about that. So oh, I will try and do some justice to the trip because it was absolutely fantastic. But uh, <laughs> I learned some things. I started doing a few different things like kind of doing like a, a racehorse type commentary when I was at sea doing stuff, which was really fun. And, uh, and I thought a unique kind of thing. But uh, yeah, totally gutting that moment when you realize like all the work you've put in has just disappeared. But um, I am told that you can fix uh, those kind of things, but the price is literally thousands of US. So, okay, no problem. We'll just go back to the beginning, right? We'll build it up with worn out tools. So the first thing is, uh, I guess what I need to say first is that um, I went and did this job during COVID-19 lockdown. And I want to tell the story, and I will reference COVID-19 a little bit, but everything we did was within the bounds and, and uh, safe guidelines of the different states, different towns, different organizations uh, that we were working with. We maintained social distancing at all times. And a lot of the decisions we made about like where we were staying, we actually had an hour's drive every night and every morning to go back some forwards to the, the boat at the initial part of this. And that was all to try and maintain as much social distance as possible. So um, no need to fill the comments with, were you socially distanced correctly? Yes, we were. But if I just refer it to all the time, it's going to be so slow. So so where was I? Well, I was in uh, Georgia, Georgia uh, in the US, not, not the other one. And uh, we were moving a very, very exciting boat. So the story basically starts about uh, six, six or seven weeks ago. I was contacted by one of the one of my crew from Patreon. So if you don't know, over on Patreon, if you search for the Mariner there, um, we have a small group of people uh, building slowly, which uh, we are like learning about seamanship. And I'm trying to make a video every week. I've missed a few, obviously, of being away, but every week is a 30-minute video, and it's real detailed stuff, like real gritty stuff, like right down to the bottom of things, rope technology, uh, knots, like looking at the very basics. It's just stuff that I feel that when I go sailing with people, they seem like a little bit lost on those things. And um, I just figured if we're going to start to create a seamanship program, let's start at the nitty gritty. So if you've got any interest in that, go over to Patreon, have a look. It's The Mariner. Um, and as yeah, it's about 20 bucks a month. So basically, it's like buying me a beer each week for a 30 minute video, which anybody that edits video <laughs> knows. Certainly, if you've got my work ethic, like 30 minutes of uh, video takes a long time to um, long time to uh, put together. But Andrew, the guy who uh, came to me with this opportunity, he was one of the guys from Patreon. And uh, he said, look, I've got this Formula 40 trimaran. Would you like to come and 
do the delivery for me. So I'm like, absolutely. Now, the good thing was that Andrew already had his head wrapped around the idea that the sailing that he had done before was not going to stand him in that good a stead for what he was now getting into. He had been sailing a, what was the boat? A Triton, I think the boat is. So it must be around 30-odd feet, uh, monohull, you know, a, a cruising boat, a coastal cruising boat, although I'm sure they've gone further, but um, in no way similar to a Formula 40 trimaran. So what is a Formula 40 trimaran? I hear you ask. So the boat that we were uh, going to um, pick up was actually built in the 1990s, and it was built for Peter Clutterbuck. Um, I, I I think somebody else had it to begin with, but Peter campaigned it for a long time, did all sorts of racing with it, and it was a very, very fast boat for its time. For pre-foiling times, it's a fast boat. Now, let's put that in context. Anything that goes over 20 knots is fast. And when you're talking about foiling or not foiling, a boat which is surfing on the surface of the water is actually a supercavitating hydrofoil operating at the surface, or a supercavitating foil, rather, operating at the surface. So the difference with foils that makes them quicker is you've not got that impedance then of being hit by waves and being slowed down. The foil maps that out for you. But yeah, once you're over 20 knots, we're talking fast. So a boat that was fast in the day is still very fast today, could still do good things. But I think in 95, it won the, the fast net, or certainly won its class. Um, and it was campaigned by a little known sailor then who became very famous later on, Brian Thompson, who's one of the mainstays both of offshore sailing and of multi-hull offshore sailing. So this is where one of the places that he cut his teeth. So Formula 40 trimarans, as far as I understand, uh, there were inshore and offshore uh, boats. The inshore boats could be deconstructed and put inside a shipping container and moved to the next event, where the offshore boats were a solid construction and couldn't be taken apart and were obviously meant then for uh, more serious offshore work. So as the name implies, a 40-foot boat was set like 12 or 13 meters. But if you've not got your head around how trimarans work, obviously we're talking three hulls, a main hull in the center, and then two flotation floats or armors on the side, um, but with a maximum beam of 35 feet. So we're talking there, what, like 11 or 12 meters. So almost like square. It's almost like a square boat, as many multi-hulls are. And uh, if you've sailed multi-hulls, then you'll instantly know what I'm talking about. If you've been on monohulls all the time, it's very difficult to understand the step up in performance when the boat's not healing over. And the step up also in comfort and in ease of operation. Uh, I'm going to tell you the story over the next hour of uh, me coming a thousand miles up the American coast. But I'll tell you right now that I could have got a three quarters full glass of water and put it down on the side deck. And for every single thing I'm going to describe to you, that glass of water would not have fallen over. It is something to behold. And I know there's always a feeling like, well, what if they flip over? Well, yeah, well, what if your monohull gets like tipped, you know, 120, 130 degrees over? It's going to be pretty damn bad, isn't it? What happens is you develop a different skill set and you avoid that one thing. So I'm a big fan of multi-hulls. I'm an even bigger fan of multi-hulls having done this delivery. So the boat, as I say, was down in Georgia. 
and it had just come off the ship from uh, Southeast Asia, where the previous owners, uh, Jason and Claudia, were based. And they actually have a YouTube channel called Sailing Trimaran Spirit. Um, you can just go and search that on, on YouTube, and you find they've got a wonderful selection of, um, of videos there of the boat's uh, previous life. And it was sailing in the most just gorgeous, gorgeous part of the world. And Jason and Claudia, I think they met just... Uh, I think they met just before the boat got its major refit, but then they did the ma major refit together. And as far as I understand, they've been on that boat for 10 years. And uh, trimarans always have a very narrow central hull uh, because of the kind of layout of things. They're designed to go fast, to squirt forwards in one direction, and it's not like some huge bulbous central area. But the thing which they were able to capitalize on and did a fantastic job of is the fact that you can live up on the decks and take advantage of the enormous area which is afforded to you when you've got a boat that's 35 feet wide. So um, down to Georgia we go. Off the ship this thing has come a couple of months before and we run into <laughs> our first problem. Like this wouldn't be a sailing story if it all, yeah, it, it was fine. I went, got the boat and everything went fine. Like of course not. We get to the boat and um, it was in a professional yard and it had been dealt with professionally but through a kind of uh, echo chamber type communication uh, situation, the, uh, the riggers had gone from um, inspecting the rigging to they had replaced the rigging, which on the surface of it seems like, well, that shouldn't be any kind of a problem. But what they had done is they'd replaced uh, synthetic rigging. And f I have no desire to be anything other than positive about any anything we're getting into on this podcast, and I have no drum to beat. But Let's all be aware in any uh, industry, in any uh, pursuit, that you know a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. We've talked to a little bit previously about the uh, the uh, uh, Dunning-Kruger effect. <laughs> um, I'm not to say that these guys were on it, but let's look at the net result of what they achieved and make judgments from there. So the thing with synthetic rigging, if we want to get into that detail first, is that can Dyneema do what? stainless steel rigging can do? The answer is yes, absolutely. And it can do it uh, over very long periods of time and it can be very light. It can be very easy to interchange it. It can be cheaper. It, you can have all sorts of benefits, right? But the rule of equilibrium says there must be a downside to it. And, and one of the, the lead downside issues is that you do have to have the right material uh, before you do it. So on my Patreon um, videos, we've been actually talking about uh, different kinds of Dyneema and Vectran and um, Xylon and all these exotic fibers. And one of the things I was explaining is the fact that we started out with SK-75, and then we went to SK-78, then we went to SK-90, and then SK-99. And then on top of that, we then have to start looking at what kind of uh, heat treatments it's had and what kind of pre-stretching it's had. And as soon as we get the word pre-stretching in there, that is the detail that I'm talking about. The, uh, the stays on the boat and the shrouds, which hold the mast up, clearly, uh, had been replaced with uh, a Dyneema, which had not been pre-stretched. How do I know this? Because it's stretched, buddy. <laughs> it's stretched way, way longer than anybody was thinking. So the, the first moment that we realized it was an issue is when we were talking to the, <clears throat> pardon me, the previous owner um, and saying, asking some detail. And he said, 
well, that normally that point of the rigging is like, you know, a meter and a half up in the air. And we're like, well, it's a meter off the ground. That's when we started to get a feel for the a meter off the deck, rather. That's when we started to get a feel for the fact that the riggers had actually replaced the rigging without overtly saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. So then we, okay, we'd stop. Let's have a look at what's going on here. And what became apparent is that they had used um, non-heat-treated, uh, uh, non-pre-stretched, uh, Dyneema. What happens when you stretch the Dyneema, and this is in a you know a commercial uh, controlled environment, is that it causes stress within the molecular structure of the material, and it it makes it recrystallize in a slightly different form, which then doesn't creep and has different characteristics. Notably, it's a lot stiffer in the hand. It has a lot closer characteristics to something like wire rather than being you know soft and rope like. So. I'd already kind of had my suspicions about it, but then suddenly it's like, oh, here we go. So we started to have a look more deeply, and that's where we go into the second issue, which is that if you're going to connect a piece of Dyneema line and make it into some kind of piece of rigging, as you can imagine, you're going to have to put some loops at the end of it, or more particularly thimbles. And the system which the previous owner had gone for is a direct swap-out system basically from uh, turnbuckles and wire rope. It's made by a company called Caligo. They do all sorts of stuff for um, standing rigging. And they create these solid um, uh, eyes, solid thimbles, I guess you'd say, which can go, or solid eyes certainly, that can go onto the end of a, um, a piece of synthetic, synthetic line which has been spliced into a loop. And it has, on this occasion, four holes in the center of this solid eye, this solid thimble. And then those four holes line up with four corresponding holes on a separate eye which is attached to where your turnbuckle would normally be so you basically got a dead eye system so if you were looking at like pirate ships from you know on pirates of the caribbean or something the way the rigging is tensioned there is that you've got these hard solid blocks of wood with three holes in look kind of like the end of a coconut or a skull or something and they have rope rove through them, um, which is then your tensioning system. They're made of lignum vitae, the, the wood of life. It's incredibly hard. And you would put a certain amount of tension in it, but then you'd sail the ship a little bit, take up the, the slack on the leeward side, tack the ship, uh, take up the, the tension on the, the, the new leeward side. And by so doing that, over a quick period of time, you can get loads of tension into the rigging. This system now that's from our you know, history of sailing is now appropriate to what we're doing in sailing because rope technology has developed so far that we can get thousands and thousands of kilos of uh, tension held by synthetic rope, um, which just would not have been possible previously, obviously, with manila and hemp line. Um, and it's so much lighter than modern stuff. It's a really good option if it's done correctly. Now, those loops, those loops that go around those Caligo eyes, they have to be made carefully and you know if you get into splicing synthetic line obviously we talk about how strong it is you know a 12 mil line can hold 8,000 kilos and all, all these fantastic numbers but clearly the, the way that it connects to other things has to be done right otherwise it's going to fail and if you haven't had Dyneema in your hand before it's an extremely slippery substance it's 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 like holding an eel you know you're certainly trying to work it on a winch or on a cleat or anything like that tie knots in it impossible one of the major reasons why it's put into a kern mantle uh, double braided construction where that outer sheath then is able to offer the friction characteristics you need to work the line so when you're trying to make an eye in something which is slippery you have to be very smart about it now the easiest way of making a, an eye in something would be to take the bitter end of the rope separate the fibers around where you want to have the eye and then just pass the bitter end of the 
line through that hole you've created and ta-da, you've got yourself a loop. But you know, if you can visualize that in your mind's eye, you can understand obviously that if you start to pull on that loop, it's just gonna pull the tail of the, uh, of the line straight back uh, through itself and it, it's gonna let go, particularly when it's so slippery. So what we have to do is we use something called a McDonald Brummel splice and that, it, to, to try and explain it, oh, I can do this, I think. You, you get the rope, uh, it's made of 12 strands. You kind of separate them in your fingers and make a hole and then you uh, take the end of the line and push it through the hole. And you can imagine this creates like a bit of a twisted kind of section in the middle of the rope. Now, if you want to sort out that twist, you've got two options. You can either pass the end of the line back through and then put it back to where it was, or you can pass the body of the standing part of the rope, like you can pass the other bit back through and, and rectify the twist by passing the other bit through. Now, if you can visualize that, what it means is that um, you have an eye, which is then basically a lasso. Uh, you've got an eye which, when you pull on it, it goes tight onto whatever it's on. And from there, you take the end of the rope, you tuck it in through the center of the, um, the dyneema, and you've got yourself a splice. The McDonald Brummel is the absolute benchmark for how you have to connect synthetic line together. You cannot do a splice where you just go round and then go back into itself because it will come undone. And unfortunately, when we looked at the splices, when we suddenly realized, like, hey, hang on, something's changed here. What's going on? We realized that that's how it had been spliced. Basically, the rope had been taken. It had been put through itself and then put into the center of the line and then a little whipping put on it, which is great if you're, like, you know, pulling your dinghy up with it. But if you're trying to apply 5,000 kilos of um, uh, pressure in a, a stay on a racing trimaran or a, a shroud, it ain't going to fly. So... Right off the bat, we realized, okay, we're going to have to basically re-rig uh, all the shrouds and stays on the boat. Um, the other thing was that the boat had been operated in Asia by, uh, you know, a very experienced couple who knew the boat very well, knew the area where they were very well, and pretty much everything they were doing was coastal work in quite sheltered waters. We were about to take it um, into the Atlantic, up the American seaboard, um, you know, and uh, I didn't actually go out into the Gulf Stream, but certainly, you know, weather can push you out that way, situation can push you out that way. You can't be setting off with like, I don't think I'm going to need that safety equipment. So we wanted to uh, get the boat up to speed with all that stuff so what should have been like a three-day prep turned into 10 days prep and I will say Andrew had an absolutely fantastic attitude to it he had uh, already kind of dived out from his work to be able to to do this but luckily the people that were around him and his partner Jess was able to understand that to do this safely we had to take these extra days and we put the extra work in and when we we set off we had you know sea trials and some teething issues you might expect but every single thing that we put in place ended up being to our benefit and we there were no issues on on the journey so um, the other thing that Andrew had said is that he wanted to learn how to like handle the boat and that was a really smart move and you know anybody getting a new boat if you can if you can take it out with the previous owner, if you can take it out with someone's experience with that kind of boat, or, or someone who just have a, a wide sphere of knowledge on seamanship, it, it's worth a lot. And you know that's how I've learned my skills. I've gone out and and sailed with people, and just like parked boats. And I remember saying to Andrew, I can't teach you how to park a boat. I can only teach you how to problem solve close to a dock. Like. How to park a boat is not like a five-step process. Approach at 30 degrees and put the wheel over here. And, like, and then if anything happens, you're totally pooched. You have to learn how to problem solve close to jetties. And you need to learn the characteristics of your boat. So although we weren't able to like leave and go on our journey, we could start doing our uh, acquaint with the boat right there in the river. And the great thing is we were on a river. 
And that created a very challenging environment. First, it's quite narrow. There's not very much uh, room to maneuver. There's a lot of traffic. Uh, there's a lot of very expensive boats on either side of the river, which keeps you focused. Um, the depths were unknown to us because um, the river was rising and falling and was very muddy. And because of the flow of sediment in the river, the depth sounder would very regularly cut out. It was starting to pick up um, uh, uh, bounce backs basically from the from the sediment uh, in in the river as the river was moving, so it wasn't really very reliable. So you had to be very cautious about that. And then the properties of the boat, and that was the thing that Andrew wanted to get to grips with. And luckily, with my experience with these, I was able to help him with. So to set the scene, obviously, if you've got a, a monohull boat like a traditional monohull boat, it may be a full keel or a, a modified keel, but it's got quite a lot of like meat in the water, which means it's got a pretty good hydraulic lock. So as long as the water body itself is not on the move, you can be pretty sure of like where you're going to be at the end of each maneuver, and you can be pretty uh, up to speed uh, quite fast as to how the boat's going to react to different things you're doing. With something like a racing trimaran, like the the Formula Forty. Um, it's got these three very slender hulls, which present three foils, which are all uh, longitudinally orientated, i.e. that they, they just want to go forwards and backwards. They don't particularly want to go through carving turns, but there's very little of them in the water. There's only, once the daggerboard's drawn up on that boat, you've probably only got, well, the daggerboard and the rudder drawn up, you've probably only got mm, maybe a foot in the water. It's like 30 centimeters in the water. And then Above the water, you've got a rotating carbon fiber wing mast. That's what this rigging was holding up. That's another reason why it was so crucial that we got it right. The rotating carbon fiber wing mast is a performance upgrade, which you know revolutionizes how much power you can get out of your sail. It means you can have basically a shorter mast uh, and, and get about 10% extra from your sail. The Open 60 that I took around the world uh, solo, she had a rotating carbon fiber wing mast and you know, amazing, amazing piece of equipment. Not really that much more complicated than having a classic rig, but if you think about it, like the front edge of the sail, where you've got the the, the depth of the core, depth of the belly of the sail, um, uh, close to the mast. On a normal sailboat, it kind of you've got that deepest part of the sail comes up to, and then is on the back of the mast, and the mast has a a shape which is in no way trying to feed air onto the sail at all. It's just this completely individual. Uh, construction which has its own airflow and the only way of ever getting smooth airflow over that would be like if the wind was coming directly from the front and you had something that was more like an oval section mast so a round mast is a, a compromise at all points but bad at all points but what a rotating uh, wing mast does is it has its own um, carefully shaped NACA section, this, uh, this aerodynamic section, which on the back edge, it has the mast track and then the sail attaches to it. So as you are adjusting the boom and adjusting the sails and trying to get you know your perfect trim, you can also trim the mast to feed air in, particularly, like, particularly if you're upwind or if you're on close reaches, it's very, very useful. You can get a lot of performance upgrade. But it means at a more fundamental layer level that, um, that the mast has a lot more windage than you might otherwise be used to. And how the mast is orientated to the wind 
is is a variable that you don't normally have to consider. If you've got it broadside onto the wind, it's a massive break. If you've got it at a kind of sailing angle, you are sailing. <laughs> the thing is like, you know, 60, 70 feet high, and it's like, I don't know, a foot from front to back, like you're sailing, you've got sail area up. So we wanted to get to, to grips all that. So what we did is, um, and I would say this for anybody who's ever, you know, teaching or instructing or mentoring anybody in this kind of stuff, don't go out and put your hand on the helm and then tell people, how to drive a boat by showing them how to drive, but how to drive the boat. Go out and those people, the people that are learning, need to have hands on. You need to get past that. It's a, a really weird aspect of sailing that loads of people can end up being fantastic sailors and they've never parked the boat or, or had to maneuver it in tricky conditions. And I've seen plenty uh, highly experienced sailors totally pooch trying to park the boat because they just don't do it. It's just not something that's taught very often. So Andrew took the helm as he should, as it's his boat. And then we and then we talked and we talked about all the factors which are at play. The river was running, the traffic, the wing mast, the lack of grip in the water. And we also identified, of course, that this boat, Spirit, is driven with an outboard engine mounted on the starboard side of the transom. Oh, a lyser on the port side of the transom. Um, so not only do we have to account for the paddle wheel effect of the propeller turning in the water. Remember, the, the propeller, the top of the propeller is closer to the surface of the water than the bottom of the propeller. That's pretty obvious. But it means that if the propeller does start to ventilate, i.e. suck air down from the surface of the water, the top of the propeller is going to be operating in a greater proportion of uh, air uh, and air bubbles than the bottom of the propeller, which creates a certain paddle wheel effect that whichever way the prop is turning, imagine it like a wheel on the ground, it's going to try and drag the boat in the direction that the propeller is turning. It's uh, something you can use to your advantage, but if you're not aware of what going on it's totally mystifying so not only did we have to deal with the fact that it was an outboard that it was a high speed prop and not high torque prop um it was mounted on the port side of the boat and it prop walked that boat i think prop walked ooh, prop walked to starboard <laughs> oh i can't remember now well it prop walked one way or the other i can't remember it was it made sense at the time um but we had to start discussing that. And the good thing is Andrew's like a, a technical guy. He's, you know, very aware of mechanical systems. So once he started to get all this in his head, we then started doing what you call in the Navy, bumps and grinds, like off the dock and a couple circles and come back in and park and off the dock and come back and park. And, and we did good. Like we didn't, we didn't, in no way did we ever damage the boat or anything else or really get scary at any point. It was just that, you know, sometimes you come in a bit quick, you've got to use a few too many revs. Um, sometimes you come in a bit too slow and you get blown off or you're too fine down the dock. But over a period of like seven or eight docking maneuvers, and this was all done with the, the, the tide running or the current running in the river and with quite a lot of wind blowing. And uh, I think what it did is it created like a, uh, a difficult set of circumstances, which then later everything else seemed comparable or easier. So it was it was a bit like baptism of fire, but Andrew handled it very well. And we, so we got to know the boat. So we're putting all the safety gear on, we're getting this rigging issue sorted, and we're just like working out how everything's connected together. And I will say that Jason and Claudia came up with a, a design. They, they did a major refit on that boat and, uh, and created it into exactly what they wanted. And they did a really, really good design. I'll say I've... You know, I've driven a lot of boats and done a lot of miles. I don't think I've ever been so uh, impressed with a boat. It's just, just cut to the chase here. Yeah. I've never been so impressed with a boat to the point that I've said to Andrew, whenever you want to get rid of this, contact me. Uh, let's see where I'm at and let's see if it's something that I can incorporate into my life. That's how good it is. Um, they have come up with a very simple setup for everything. Uh, lots of redundancy. Um, 
and, and a boat, the basic platform they'd chosen, like multi-hulls are a really good option for cruising. Um, I, you know, to spool forward in the story slightly, Andrew did have to go back to work because of the delays, and I, I did a lot of the delivery solo, and um, I found handling that boat, bringing it into port and, and docking it, and, you know, n not problematic. You just, you work out what its characteristics are, and then you park in the spot that's easiest for that boat to get into. You don't get yourself into tricky circumstances, and... Uh, yeah, I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. Uh, but it, it was uh, it, a really impressive boat. Like you could think, like, yeah, I could, I could do this. Like I could travel far and wide. Maybe not so suited to cold environments. It's, you know, they were in a in a hot uh, environment. I think they did the refit in Early Beach and then uh, went up to Asia after that. So Australia and Asia, I could see I'd be really suited to that. But um, you know, it's nice when you're on a cruising boat where ten knots is not a problem. Averaging 15 knots is not really a stretch and the excitement of 20, 25 knots is available. Now, you know, that makes it sound like I'm just into racing and everything else, but look at the logistics. Like you can move in almost no wind. You can make great headway in, in mediocre wind. And if it's super awful, you know, are you going to flip over because it's a trimaran? No, you're not. Of course, you just learn a different set of skills or you don't go out in the water. That's what cruising's about, right? You don't go out into that sort of stuff. So um, Andrew, obviously, as you can imagine, was uh, biting uh, or chomping rather at the bit to, to, to get going. And so was I. So once we got to the end of our um, period, I, I, will, I will share with you that, you know, not everything goes smoothly. I, I always want to try and um, put out there when I get things wrong as well. And I had got the information that the air draft, the height of the mast of the boat was 63 feet. Now, I will say that I was a little suspicious. That's why I didn't put the wind instruments on the top of the mast, because I knew that the bridge that we had to go under, the only real low bridge that we had to go under to come out of that river was um, about 65, 66 feet high. So I... Um, I had left the wind instruments off, and then as we came towards the bridge, what happens on the bridges in the U.S. is that they have uh, boards which um, are down by the water, which the water covers and uncovers, and on it is written the air draft of the bridge. And then obviously as the tides lower, the number increases. Now it's 65 feet clearance, 66 feet clearance as the tide goes down, and then those numbers are covered up as the tide comes back up. So you always, got, you always know how much bridge there is above you. So we approached the bridge, I think, with like... 65 or 66 feet um, uh, available. Um, but because we were suspicious, we were doing it on a rising tide, which means that we were slowly stemming the tide. We were going into the flow of the river. So if at any time we cut power, we'd be blown or rather washed back away from the bridge. Like you don't want to approach a bridge uh, that you're not sure if you can get under when the tide's flowing with you. It's not worth it. <laughs> there are enough videos on YouTube that tell you what happens next. I don't need to explain it. So we went into the rising tide and uh, Andrew was driving and very slow, 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 slow down, slow down. Okay, go to neutral and then bonk, we hit the bridge. Oh my goodness. So we back off. And yeah, there's always consternation when you hit your mast on anything, but the top of these kind of carbo rigs is, you know, it's strong, it's tough, it's designed for taking um, big spinnakers and big loads. And we were going so slowly that there really wasn't any uh, worry that we had uh, damaged the mast and, and a mast inspection confirmed that, um, you know, we hadn't even scuffed the paint. But the point was that I made the mistake of believing that piece of detail which had been kind of thrown out there, what we found out very quickly, is that yes, the mast is 63 feet long, 
the mast is 63 feet long. You need to add the distance from the water to the deck. So there you go, I make mistakes. So we then concluded that we'd actually need about 67 feet to get under the uh, bridge rather than the 66 feet that we'd had available. And indeed that was available on the next tide, which is when we got underneath it. So, you know, we're all, we're all still learning, but um, I guess the thing is these days, I, I carefully approach pinch points where it might go wrong rather than hooning in there as I did when I was younger. But um, we got under the bridge the next day and we went down to uh, Thunderbolt Marine, which is right there. And, um, and it was really good actually. It was uh, an excellent opportunity to come alongside and thanks to the people at Thunderbolt Marine that made that possible for us. We had uh, not considered the fact that it was Father's Day <laughs> and that everybody in the world was out on the river and they didn't really have any uh, space for transients, but uh, a little gap was found for us and we got in. And we had the opportunity to meet some fantastic other uh, boat owners and, and project uh, uh, leaders, I guess you could say, people that were there engaged in longer term projects with their boats. And um, hi to, uh, to Guy and Naomi and to um, Leslie and uh, Mickey, who were, were, they had two different boats, two very different kind of boats. Guy and Naomi had a beautiful, I guess it would have been 65 or 70 foot monohull catch, um, heavy go anywhere, very comfortable, beautiful boat that was getting varnish work done uh, when we were there, looking glorious. And then further down the dock was a boat which we were trying to work out, is this a gunboat or is this not a gunboat? And it's got its whole own story, which I'll we'll maybe get Leslie and Mickey on and uh, we can go through their project. But basically, damaged by fire, written off and sold. And then after a few like owners that didn't know what they were doing, Leslie and Mickey got on board and putting proper money and proper skills and proper service providers onto it have rebuilt this beautiful carbon fiber multi-hull boat and they're I'd say they're 65 or 70 percent of the way through their project they're you know now getting into doing interior woodwork and and getting electrics back together and fixing the plumbing and all those things which really are kind of part of everyday life anyway but they have this wonderful boat but they they, they went out on a limb to get it and had to kind of ice skate uphill a little bit with people but um yeah I think they've got themselves a fantastic boat so maybe that's a good direction for this podcast to to go or certainly to include it's just you know, what are people doing with their boats? How are they, how are they making it happen? How is their dream going? I'd love to, to get them on and chat. But um, after Thunderbolt, we had to get going. Obviously, we had taken us more like seven or eight days or something to get ourselves uh, going. I will add that I had to, uh, <laughs> we got to a point where like everything was good to go. And then the autopilot stopped working for no particular reason. And because of COVID, um, UPS and FedEx and those kind of things not really working. And most big companies like West Marine in the US have not got access to the same stock that they would normally have. So we just wanted to get hold of one of these uh, ACU, ACU 100, I think it was a Raymarine uh, autopilot like brain box. And um Man alive, like you couldn't get a straight answer from anybody on like how long this is going to take to get there. And if you go for UPS overnight, is it going to work? Or if you get the three days, is it going to work? And it's like, you know, we are running out of time. So I identify one that was in West Palm Beach. And bear in mind, we're in South Carolina. And we kind of looked at each other, Andrew and I, and like, well, it's the only way of confirming the outcome is to just take the bad tack. And the bad tack was me in a car and driving a thousand miles in a day, like almost to the mile from the house to where I needed to pick it up in West Palm Beach. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Give me that thing. Or yes, madam, actually it was. And thanks very much. Give me that thing. And then straight back in the car and straight back up the road. And, and just to reiterate, crossing the border with the checks as per COVID, um, masks on, uh, social distancing, cleaning things, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, as I actually 
came out of Boston, had a COVID-19 check and was negative, then I I guess what we did was right. But a thousand mile journey a day is always a long one. But, um, you know, you get the tunes on. It's kind of like being on watch for a real long time. (laughs) But we've all been there. We know what that is. But by the time the end of that day came, we did indeed have the unit um, and uh, we were able to put it into the boat and we had ourselves an operational boat. So Uh, Off we go out the river, and if anybody doesn't know this part of the world, let me tell you that my learning on this one was the fact that all rivers in the Carolinas and Georgia seem to have a hook as you're leaving the river. You don't just kind of exit the river into the open ocean. There seems to be a shoal ground or sand bank or coral or whatever the hell it is that is in a perfect barrier to get out to the open ocean, and you have to dogleg to the south to get out of the river system. And when the wind is from the south and you're in a trimaran, you very quickly learn how to tack up tide and upwind to get yourself out of these rivers. And uh, Andrew and I had a few kind of uh, exciting moments getting to grips with exactly how to get this uh, little trimaran to, to tack into the wind, which is always tricky with multi-hulls. They don't, they don't have very much inertia to kind of turn once the, once the power of being on the beat is lost and they have to flick the wind onto the other side of the sails. The inertia is lost very quickly and it's very easy to stall back onto the tack you were previously on, which is no help at all if you're trying to exit a, a tight river system. So we exited the river in Savannah and went just a little way up the coast to Hilton Head, which is a uh, an island, which um, that's actually where our house was. We've been traveling every day from Hilton Head back down to Georgia and back up, which... Um, was was good from the point of view of, of keeping us somewhat distance uh, in terms of social distancing, but wasn't awesome to have to do an hour's drive in the morning, an hour's drive at night. I think we were both pretty tired by that. But um, the, where the house is, is absolutely glorious. It's uh, Andrew's partner's parents' house and uh, just, just fantastic. We met some lovely people there. But uh, brought the boat in there. And then lo and behold, for me, I learned something, which is that is Port Royal. That area there at Hilton Head in, in South Carolina is Port Royal. Now, I've heard that name thrown around in every pirate film and every pirate book and all these things from history. I just had it in my head that Port Royal was like somewhere in the Caribbean or something. But no, it's it's right there. It was a, a big trading point in the Americas. So I was very interested to eat up the local history and find out what was going on. And uh, unfortunately, had to come as often happens face to face with the appalling history of the place and slave trading and and the most terrible uh, uh, way that human beings have been treated by other human beings but um you know thank goodness we we're on an upwards move from that although it does seem that the the, the mistakes of history keep going round and round what is uh, epilogue is prologue but um but but interesting to connect places together and 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 make that history more real and and more vital and more and more important but um we were there for just a short period of time like finishing up things at the house and then started to make our way up the coast and that's where the fun really begins i think that's the right time in the story to tell you like what this boat's about so yeah it was a racing trimaran back in the day it was a hot racing trimaran back in the day and then it was refit in such a way that a couple could live on board it and indeed jason and claudia lived there for um 10 years on this boat i don't know if it was expressly on the boat all the time but it was their main place that they lived and and i can really understand that i was a little bit suspicious at the beginning like how exactly they do that but having spent a number of weeks around this boat and i don't know was it a week or something at sea on it um it you could you could really do that like as long as you're of the correct mindset to to accept what is a cruising life anyway like i, my, I came up reading uh, cruising under sail by eric hiscock you know I'm, I'm i'm down with the fact that you know your, your feet 
when you sleep in your bunk, maybe in the locker that's got your jacket hanging in it. It's uh, I'm down with that and caravan life and tiny homes. And so I never got an issue with that. But because you've got this enormous space on deck, you've just got these other options that you don't normally have on a monohull. You can go and sit out on the trampoline. Now I'll add at this point that I was clipped on at all times when I was solo on the boat, but not to try and make it too... Um, uh, serious, but just also to avoid the whimsy of like, I'm just lying on this trampoline above the ocean. You know, I had it in my head too. Like, what if this thing ruptures? It's been out in for 10 years in the sun of Asia. But I was, I was clipped on. But, you know, sure, you, you're just lying on a, on a net, which is, I don't know, three feet above the water that's zipping by underneath you at 10 knots. And the boat's not even trying. Um, Jason and Claudia also put in place a uh, solar panel charging system with lithium-ion batteries, which... You know, that, that's not cheap. That's a, that's a big item to choose to put onto a boat. But as they were living on it, they made that decision wisely. And, uh, and I was blown away. Like, obviously, I'm aware of lithium-ion batteries. I'm aware of modern solar cells and what they're capable of. But that boat was running a refrigerator. Uh, it was running an autopilot. It was running a 1990s B&G uh, performance processor pack, which is not exactly attempting to be a... Uh, conservative piece of electrical equipment you know they they chew amperage like you wouldn't believe it's running probably 10 instruments on deck it's got nav lights on it's got it's charging a ipad at all times it's you know it's running what you've got on your boat unless you've also got a dishwasher and what have you and it was sunny it was it was sunny i won't say it wasn't it was it was nice summer sun it was uh, it was a nice time to be out on the water but i never saw those batteries go under 13 volts now that's a combo of the well-suited panels to well-suited charge controller to well-suited lithium-ion charger, battery uh, uh, maintenance system, um, a digital battery uh, maintenance pack that's uh, built into the, the batteries and the batteries themselves. But it is a very liberating experience to be on the boat and to be looking at the numbers all the time, like still 13, still 13. Now, if you've got 12-volt batteries and they're sitting on 13 volts all the time, that's like chock-a-block full. I, most of the time, they're at 13.2, um, which if you're not aware with batteries, like there's a big difference between... 11.8 and 12.8 like that one volt is pretty much your entire discharge of your battery give or take so when you've got a set of batteries that are running a refrigerator and an autopilot and all the rest of that stuff i mentioned for weeks and obviously probably now for years on end and 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 doing such a good job of it like that's noteworthy and i i did go and look at the price of uh, lithium-ion batteries they're not cheap um but it it has got me thinking my, my previous experience of solar uh, battery sorry solar battery and charging system on a boat has always been with lead acid batteries and solar cells charging lead acid batteries and it was like me you know it's kind of okay uh but this this was like a view of something else and uh i did not have to run any kind of internal combustion engine for any of the power for any of the time that i was on the boat and i i think i could have very easily had two more lithium-ion batteries and maybe two more cells and had those charging for the amount of motoring i did i could have just motored with an electric motor super super easily so um, yeah, real eye-opening for me that and just quiet and you know not having to listen to a bloody engine going all the time and that stuff So I was blown away with that um, Inside the boat now one of the podcasts I did which is unfortunately is, uh, is now lost. I, oh, I, I believe it's lost um, I was sitting inside the boat I was sitting on one of the bunks and I was describing what I could see around me I'm not going to try and like recreate what I said because it would be a little bit false. What's that called? Uh, 
that's called the verisimilitude, isn't it? That I should, I should be accurate in what I'm trying to portray. So I'm sitting in the barn, and this stuff is a couple of weeks ago, but to go back there, it's warm, but there are fans on inside the boat, and there is light, like a lot of light. The interior of the boat is painted white. It's got nice light gray sumbrella cushions and, 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 and bits of canvas work that need to be done are all done in light gray. Um, and the boat, I, I'm not sure if it's originally like this, but it's got little port lights set into the side of the hull. So nothing too revolutionary at this point. It's got hatches set into the upper deck. Still nothing too revolutionary. But because it's a multi-hull, it has an escape hatch set into the side of the hull. And if you haven't been on a multi-hull, obviously there is always the logical conclusion of a particular course of action that you could flip it over. And you don't want to be trapped upside down in a multi-hull because it's not coming back over on its own, like obviously, right? Equally, it's not going to sink because it doesn't have a keel. So let's, you know, we could discuss the difference between monohull and multi-hulls in terms of safety and dealing with them in storms uh, at a later date. But um, what you have to have is you have to have an escape axe. So you've got a hatch set into the side of the boat, which is the size of like the foredeck hatch on your boat. It's, you know, what is that, like 18 inches diagonally, something like that. But it's down by the water and the lower three inches of it are pretty much completely covered with water all the time. So you've got this beautiful blue and like this glimpses down into the depths and you've got this wonderful waterscape rushing along like right next to the head of the double bunk that's at the front of the cabin and then there's a hatch overhead and there's a little port set into the hull on the other side and there was an incredible feeling of light inside the boat and I've you know I've driven a lot of race boats and not a lot of um, time and uh, effort is put into making the interior nice but it is something that I've already kind of become aware of with Falcon um, I'm repainting the interior now and last time I repainted her sister vessel Spartan um, I repainted it in gray which I didn't have any problem with but now I'm realizing like these things do affect you know the way you kind of uh, feel and uh, and white is a good light bright color and when you've got all this light shining in and the water running past and a very positive environment to be in. So a basic kind of idea of the layout of the boat. The boat's got a four peak, which is divided from the main accommodation by a watertight bulkhead. So that's already like brilliant from my point of view, because far too many 40 foot cruising boats don't have watertight bulkheads. And that means, I'm sorry, if you drive into something, it's going to sink. Like you can have all of the electric bilge pumps in the world, unless you've got something massive on board, it gonna sink like that's just the way it is you need a watertight bulkhead or a boat or something that can be a watertight bulkhead let's now to you know i i'm the guy that's got a, a, a open 60 which has got i think four watertight bulkheads forward of the mast like she's designed for going up wind in very heavy conditions in the southern ocean so she's a little bit different but when i get on board a 40 footer like a j1 j122 or a j130 or something like that and it's like there's no bulkhead in this boat <laughs> like what exactly is the plan if we hit something but anyway i digress as always but so the uh the, the forward bunk in the cabin is actually uh it's got the centerboard casing going between the, the the two kind of parts of the bunk and the head of the bunk is the compression post for the mast so you can guess we're dealing with like six foot forward of the mast and then you've got this this kind of vestibule at the that's the best way I think of describing it at the head of the bunk, which is you've got the emergency hatch on one side, you've got a port light set into the hull on the other side, you've got a hatch above you, which you can open and put a fan into and cool down. And it's just light and bright and lovely. And then there's, um, you've only probably got like six foot of the rest of the cabin for you back out in the cockpit. And on one side, that's like a, a prep area and a lovely wooden um, bowl. Like I'm always amazed that boat design, there's, there's sailing 
is it Sailing Uma is one of the YouTube channels. Like they've done a fantastic job on the inside of their boat. Like they've used modern design cues and they've taken things from caravans and uh, tiny homes and and all sorts of other small living spaces and they've incorporated it into a boat. And I say I grew up reading um, Cruising Under Sail by Eric Hiscock. I have a version of that which is literally hand annotated till you can't almost see the original words, like every detail of it. But I'm not really a big fan of what that adds up to. You can end up with lots of very dark kind of candle lit illuminated like Sherlock Holmes study type wooden interiors for boats, which are obviously beautiful, but there are other ways of doing it, which are which are good for the psychology of the people inside them, which are light and bright. And I, you know, I just keep saying that now, but it's it is so important. And um, this this boat's spirit, as it's been re uh, reimagined by Claudia and Jason, um, everything's light and easy and simple. And when they decide to put a sink into the work surface, instead of just getting like a steel thing and setting it into the sink, they they got a nice. Uh, I think it's probably bamboo uh, a bowl, like cir circular bowl with a plug in the middle of it, and uh, and that's the sink. And it's just such a simple thing. It's almost irrelevant to set, but why couldn't you have that? Why couldn't you have something that's beautiful and nice to look at instead of just some old crappy piece of stainless steel, whatever, that's just going to end up a bit rusted and tarnished and, you know, look a mess later on. So I really appreciate some of their design choices. And then the, um, the, you know, now don't think for a second that I'm like head over heels for everything. I will, will say this, that uh, there was wonderful attention to detail on that boat. But if you're going to do an electronics cabinet, don't zip tie every single thing together. Not unless you are going to get little ring numbers and put the ring numbers on every wire and then have an inventory, not an inventory, a key to, or was it a legend in fact, to, uh, to your um, uh, electrical diagrams and number every wire. Because if you're going to try and trace a wire, and everything is zip tied together. I actually put a new wire in, came down from the mast with a, a new uh, tri tricolore and uh, anchor light combo light we put on the top of the mast. And I had to wire it into the nav, uh, nav station. I had to undo 27 zip ties to get one wire set into the into the line. So don't don't think for a second that uh, everything's perfect. But you know, everyone's got their own way of doing stuff. I will say that it looks incredibly neat uh, when it's done like that. Um, it's just God help you if anything ever goes wrong. But um, you know, beautifully like compact little uh, 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 kind of switch panel and, and and instruments in one area. And then yeah, you could put a you could put a folded down chart out on the table. But they were primarily doing electronic navigation. You could the thing with this boat is that if you were going to do something like navigation, you'd do it in the cockpit. You wouldn't do it in the in the um, inside the boat there's so much area remember it's not healing over there's not loads of water like hitting you all the time it's very easy to just be out in the cockpit now uh, opposite the the little prep area and the the nav station is a, a bunk maybe four feet long you can sit and relax there if you want and then when you're going to go out onto the deck it, it's a crawl you're crawling through essentially what i believe is probably a carbon or composite bulkhead that's probably three inches thick and is where this big carbon arm at the back of the boat that connects onto the uh, the armors the little holes on the side that bulkhead of the boat as it is on the forward one is very very strongly made the boat's very lightly made but the frame of the the arms going out to the hulls the bulkhead they attach to and the bulkheads inside the armors that's all carbon and it's very very strong so when you get out into the cockpit you're going to be crawling out there and you're going to be crawling over another little bench to get out but that bench underneath it has the fridge and it's a big deep fridge i'd maybe guess it was 
40 liters, 50 liters, something around there, quite deep. And it just worked like a dream. It's fantastic. So inside the boat, you've got like a little nav area, a little prep area, a sink on the other side of bunk. Um, down below the prep area, you've got the lithium ion batteries and the water maker. Um, down below the other area is where we put the safety gear. And then there's a kind of bench that you crawl over to get out. And when you come out into the cockpit, you're at like a lower level of the, of the cockpit, like a real protected little well that you can sit in and what happens then is there's a step inside the cockpit that goes up to like the normal kind of cockpit seats and once you get into the cockpit it looks pretty much like any 30 or 40 foot um, boat with tiller steering but it's got this step and I realized actually for me with the stuff I want to do on the open 60 I would love to create some kind of step type situation in the cockpit which sounds odd or maybe just like a seat or something but I found that I could just sit I get a cushion I'd sit on that little step inside the cockpit it's unbelievably protected uh they have the stove that they cooked on outside because remember they're in a hot environment they have a place that they do their washing up on the other side underneath two little bunks or two little seats rather and it's just this deep well and you know if you want to learn more about this go and have a look at their youtube channel uh sailing trimaran spirit and you'll kind of be able to visualize this if i'm not doing a good job of describing it but there was this wonderfully and there's a, there's a dodger there's a soft um sombrella or sombrella like material dodger on it and it just was this like place you could hide out you could be on deck but you're not getting t constantly soaked and because the boat doesn't heel over any more than three or four degrees you're not getting thrown around all the time and I, I, f I found it to be a really great way to be out on the water I really really did I can't uh, you know underline that uh, anymore I, I was very very impressed with the boat and then in the cockpit two big cockpit lockers with all sorts of equipment and as you can imagine the start uh, controls for the outboard and the outboards on a big uh, aluminum arm that uh, you have a winch and you can drop that down into the water and the the and also I should add that um, Jason and Cloudy when they did the big refit on it they they added a huge curved beam that went from the very back of the cockpit and curved round and joined the aft um, cross beam and that gave it a real kind of like modern multi hull look and it created two huge sitting areas which they put like kind of a mesh rather than a, a net they put a mesh across there with um, fiberglass battens and all kind of lashed off and everything so a very flat uh, tense uh, tent tent is that right very t well t tightly strung uh, mesh uh, in a kind of um, quadrant shape and uh, it just there's all sorts of areas to be on the boat I guess that's the thing that really struck me there's all sorts of areas to be you could host 10 people on that boat no problem at all no problem at all. Uh, nighttime, you could put little tents out on the nets if you wanted little dome tents, like all sorts of options. So um, uh, Andrew came with me up to Virginia Beach, which is, um, I never even heard of it before. It's a, it's a fantastic place on the surface. Uh, I was We found our way in through a little na narrow channel and took a little turn into this, I think it's called Wesley Lake, um, and, and anchored up there. But it is also directly, I think it's, Edwards Air Force Base, is that right? I'm not sure, but it's, I tell you what, there's a lot of fighter jets go over it. Like, oh my God, I think they call it fighter town. There's literally two fighter jets, training jets, taking off every 15 minutes. Like, I was losing my mind. I've been in um, St. Martin many, many times. And in the lagoon there, you're right next to the St. Martin airport. And there's big passenger jets taking off all the time. And as they come up over the lagoon, the engines are pointed directly at the lagoon. And you just get this thunderous roar, which is you know kind of interesting once or twice. But once you're on to your 40th of the day, it's just 
it's not for me, you know. Uh, <laughs> I like it here in Nova Scotia where it's nice and quiet. I'm done with living in Sydney and Seoul and Cape Town and, and uh, you know, Hong Kong and that sort of stuff. I just want to live somewhere quiet. And these jets going over, I was losing my mind. But, um, yeah, we... Um, we, I had to say goodbye to Andrew at that point. Unfortunately, you know, he got as much as he could, but reality knocked and he had to, to, to get home and get back to work, bearing in mind the fact that he had to do quarantine and stuff and was very much limited in what he could do when he got back. So, uh, so I set off. So, <laughs> so now I've got myself a 40-foot trimaran on my own. So um, it, was, uh, it was brilliant. It was one of the most enjoyable sales I think I've had in a, in a very long time, probably caused by it being a multi-hull, which I loved. I loved the speed. Um, it was actually very, very light winds and I actually motored for about 18 hours of it. And you know, that little outboard engine, um, I think it was 18 horse, two stroke Tahatsu. Uh, if I kept the, if I was in flat, flat water, I was doing three and a half knots, but three and a half knots on a multi-hull when you've got the um, big head saw like stretched down in tight and made into like a kind of like a code zero, um, she starts to build apparent wind. As long as your true wind is, you know, there's a fraction of true wind, she, with that little input from the engine, she'll start to motor sail. And when you've got a boat that's so light with such a good power to weight ratio, she'll start to motor sail at like six knots, seven knots. So for the engine RPM at what would drive me at three and a half knots in flat water, suddenly I was doing six or seven knots. And in that fashion, it used 120, well, a little bit, not quite 20 liters of fuel in 18 hours. Like, there's a lot of things that start to work to your advantage when you start thinking in this way. It's kind of like getting a, looking at like smart cars and things on the road. You know, they do those NCAP test results for cars crashing into each other, and they have to make them stronger and stronger, and the brakes more and more powerful, and everything has to increase and increase as the mass goes up. But if you go the other way and you invert the equation, you get lighter and lighter, you need less and less. And that tiny little engine which I'm always a big fan of outboard engines actually on yachts, although they're not like very beautiful to look at. Um, the thing is, if anything goes wrong with it, you just twist it off, carry it up the dock, put it in the back of the car, take it to the person that um, <laughs> fixes stuff. And actually on that boat, on Spirit, the tender has a comparably sized engine. It's actually got a hard bottom, I think 11 or... 10 or 11 foot long tender with a hard fiberglass bottom and, a, and I think a 15 horsepower Tahatsu on the back of that. So you could actually swap, if your engine pooched itself in the middle of somewhere, you could actually just take the engine off the tender and put it on the main boat and then off you go or tow the boat with the tender or whatever you want to do. But suddenly there's options and there's things available and like it doesn't take much fuel and you don't have zillions of interior lights and zillions of like, you know, stereo systems and stuff. You've just got a few bits and these four solar cells are charging two lithium and batteries and like wow everything gets simple and i think that's actually the tagline on their youtube channel the simple life and um yeah i'd, I'd have a look at that uh, oh and have a look at mine as well <laughs> i see that i've just gone past 1700 subscribers so like we're going somewhere oh and talking about that uh, I got a company contact me called Chartables, which I guess because the podcast has been around for a couple months now. And lo and behold, number 21 in the wilderness section in Australia. Like, who would have thought? Number 36 in the Netherlands. In, uh, so I got to get on this. Like, there's, there's actually more than three people listening to this. Like, who would have possibly guessed? I, you know, next thing, I got to find out where the charts are going in Zanzibar. Is there anybody in Zanzibar listening to me? Like, there could be far-flung little pockets of people. They're excited to listen to me my stories about sailing um 
but uh, yeah, so so off up the coast I go, and um, I called in then to um, uh, called into what's the next place I went to. Ocean City. Aha, yes, Ocean City. I called into Ocean City and I have a thank you to make to Steve Butts from uh, Sail Alyosha. So I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Steve. Um, I came in there in the middle of the night because I'd actually snapped the um, soft shackle which connected the main halyard to the to the mainsail. Uh, we'd had a few issues with it. Um, I think it had got twisted up or something. Not quite sure exactly what it was, but it, uh, it, it had gone ping in the middle of the night and that's a bit of a tricky one I did not have my solo mast climbing uh, gear with me so it was very tricky to get up the rig um, I have been up masts like that before I have actually been up pretty much exactly the same situation and then just climbed the main halyard uh, put a, a prusik onto uh, another halyard and then just climbed the, the main halyard if you've got two bits of a halyard together for me that's two half inch ropes I can I can climb that with using my feet on the mast but you know it's it's clearly not something you want to do there are certain risks you can take there's certain risks you don't want to take and um, a harness and a prusik and a line is somewhat safety but this was ridiculous I wasn't going to free climb the rig like to go and do that when I can just call in and get some help so I came in about three o'clock in the morning and went into a marina that was full 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 of sport fishers and uh, then I know is, uh huh. there's a 50-foot multi-hole there. If anybody is likely to want to, you know, maybe give me a hand, uh, it's the owner of a multi-hole. So I tied up alongside this um, beautiful um, uh, South African-built uh, cat. And uh, in the morning, indeed, down comes Steve, and we introduce ourselves, and hey, what's going on? He says, you know, anything I can do to help you? He's very, very uh, happy to, to, to get in with things. And I said, look, this is a deal. My main halyard's uh, soft shackles broke. Can you help me? So I wasn't about to put him through the ordeal of uh, pulling me up the rig on a one-to-one -one halyard because poor guy <laughs> had a day of work to do. He didn't want to be full of sweat and nasty and, and doing that uh, when he's trying to help somebody out. So I got him to basically tell me and I just climbed up the rolled up jib. And it's been a while since I've done that stuff. I'm definitely starting to get um, back into training now, ready for going to sea with the Open 60 and the physical uh, pressure that's going to be on me there and the, the, the requirement to be strong and, and have good endurance. And, uh, and we did okay. I climbed, well, I guess what the rig is, 63 feet. We know that, right? And then you've got a bit of a triangle there. So I guess we're talking like 80 foot maybe of uh, a four stay with a, a rolled up jib on it and uh, got up that. And then I got to the top. It gets too narrow to continue climbing. So I swung onto the rig and then uh, Steve uh, hoiked me up the last bit. So thank you very much to him. That was a, a huge, although it was a small thing, it was a huge thing. And that's always the way with help. So he really paid it forward on that one. So I shall make sure that I, I pay it forward also. But um Steve's uh, catamaran is, uh, he's got a very interesting story that I went online and had a look at. His boat is Alyosha, which is A-L-Y-O-S-H-A. If you're in the Baltimore area or in Maryland, it's very much worth having a look at. His website is sailalyosha.com. And then he has a lovely uh, blog about himself and his family sailing around the world on that boat in a three-year circumnavigation with some great pictures there. So um, thank you to him. That really, really helped me out. So I got going the next day. And um, then, then heading for the well, heading for the, the the canal, heading for the Cape Cod Canal. So this brings us into the last quarter of an hour or so of the blog. And as always, I leave <laughs> the best for last because it it does sound like it's going quite well, doesn't it? It does sound like you know 
like it's all right. Like basically, we had a bit of a problem with the rig, and we kind of bumped the the mast on the on the on the bridge there. But other than that, it sounds well. No, of course, there's something else. There had to be something else. And uh, and I, I'm happy always to share my mistakes and my oversights. And um, uh, basically, what happened on the boat is that the previous owner had been doing a lot of iPad nav- navigation, which again is suited to what they are doing and their situation and their skill levels and and where they're at and what they want to do. But there are some limitations with using iPads. Modern technology is racing ahead, and you can do all sorts of things with an iPad. And obviously, you can have a program like Navionics, and you can have you know basically Admiralty charts at the touch of your fingers. You can have, as that boat's got, a Wi-Fi uh, uh, radar dome, which is sending out a signal which you can also access. Um, it, you can get your AIS information up and see what's going on with the vessels around you. You can, you can do all sorts of things. But there's a reason why they still make chart plotters. And that's because uh, iPads can go flat. iPads are difficult to manipulate when they're inside of uh, their protective cases or if your fingers get wet or get cold. Um, iPads will only be able to connect to one Wi-Fi source while you're doing your GPS and AIS work. But then you're going to have to disconnect from that to reconnect to the radar signal, radar Wi-Fi, if you're going to use that. So you start to get into a... A thing where you're like, okay, we're going to have to really understand this situation so that we can uh, get the best out of this. You know, I'm not saying it's dangerous to navigate by iPad only, but I will say we did have paper charts, hand-bearing compass, uh, Breton plotter, pencils, erasers, almanac, like you name it. We also had that stuff as once. So the story I'm about to tell in in no way think that I was um, uh, didn't have other options to hand, but... I want to express the story and and kind of um, show how I dealt with the situation. So one thing you should know about iPads, and I did know it already, but I had got a little swept up with the, oh, there's no wind, it'll be fine, um, is the fact that unless an iPad, to the best of my knowledge, unless an iPad has a SIM card slot in it, i.e. can do um, data, like cell data, uh, it doesn't have a GPS in. So just to repeat that, if it doesn't have a slot in the side of it for a SIM card, i.e. connect to the cell network, it will not have GPS in it. And that's different from Android uh, tablets, which do. What that means is that it's getting its fix of like where you are from surrounding uh, Wi-Fi uh, networks. That doesn't work very well when you go offshore. Uh, what the iPad was then getting its signal from was its wireless connection to the ship's uh, Uh, um, instrument system and the GPS which was running on the ship's system on an NMEA system okay so we've got a ship's GPS uh, signal which is being transmitted to the iPad via the wireless connection and the iPad is also simulating having a GPS fix by using wireless information from wireless networks when it's on the land but what very quickly became obvious was the fact that when we went to sea, the iPad had to be connected to the wireless network for the boat, otherwise it didn't know where it was, okay? Now, you can still see the chart, and you can still move a cursor around, and it'll show you where the cursor is on the chart. And you can still see the position of buoys, and you can still see the position of other vessels which are on AIS, because they are being rendered on the chart using their GPS information that they're transmitting, which is then just being put on the chart. It doesn't matter where you are, it shows where they are, okay? Now, 
everything's going fine, of course. And when would it possibly go wrong? Well, let's have a think. When would such a little detail go wrong? Would it go wrong immediately? No, no, no. Would it go wrong later? Well, yeah, but when a little detail like that is going to go wrong, it's going to go wrong when you really need it not to go wrong. And that is the way with every single one of these kind of problems. When a little detail like this shows itself is at the exact moment when you need it most. So I journey north, north from Ocean City, and I'm coming up towards Block Island. I'm north now of the latitude of New York, and I'm about to enter Long Island Sound, and I'm gonna start to head to the east end of Long Island Sound towards Martha's Vineyard, and then my plan is to go through the Cape Cod Canal. Now, if you're not really aware of the area, you've got a lot of off-lying islands towards, if you kind of think of where New York is, well, there's a lot of land that goes out to the east uh, of, of New York, which is Long Island and Fire Island and Block Island and all that lot, and Martha's Vineyard. And then out there also is uh, Cape Cod. And at that point, you're out into the, the Atlantic Ocean proper, and you're out onto a lot of shoal ground and a lot of very difficult waters to be making your way around um, in, in a you know, smaller sailboat. So there is a cut through and the cut through is the Cape Cod Canal and that will literally save you about 100 to 150 miles. Um, so that was where I was heading. Now, as I start to enter Long Island Sound and all the rest of it, what I immediately start to realize is that the ship's GPS uh, unit has gone down and I'm now getting very intermittent uh, GPS uh, positioning. So what can I do? Well, what I've got to do is I've got to keep I gotta keep uh, safe, that's our ultimate goal. I'm also though trying to get to the canal for a particular time, because I know that at I think it was five o'clock in the morning, the tide starts to run in the direction I need it to run for me to be able to go through the canal. Because when you're going through this canal, the tidal stream in there is literally uh, four and a half knots. It is a, a mad, mad place to go into. If you ever get the opportunity to go through it, I definitely say do it. Um, I went in there solo in a 40-foot trimaran, 35 foot wide, and had only lots and lots of fun. So clearly I got there, don't worry. <laughs> this story's not gonna add in, end in some kind of disaster. But um, to get to that back, back corner uh, between all the islands and everything is a bit of a job. And it's nighttime and it's windy as all get out, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's raining, and the GPS is not working properly. So I continued on with the task of trying to problem solve the situation I had because I knew this. A, I can anchor at any point. It's shallow. I can just anchor. It's not an issue. If I start to feel like, hey, this is getting dangerous, I can just anchor. Uh, B, I uh, have a lot of experience with coastal nav. I was in the Royal Naval Reserve in the UK, and we were not in any way uh, <laughs> operational as a naval unit, but man, oh man, did we do a lot of coastal navigation. So I'm very happy with that. Um, I now have you know, a lot of years of experience of problem solving at sea, and what it did is it, it got me to focus in on like, well, what kind of other information can I use to work out where I am? So I can see where flashing marks are and on all the different information that they're able to transmit to me, you know, light signatures and color codings and uh, Morse code uh, letters and some of them were Raycons. I've also got the position of the other ships showing on my chart as AIS contacts, which means I don't know where I am, but if I see something go past me at 20 knots and then all of the um, other craft that I see on my AIS projection are all doing four knots apart from one of them's doing 20 knots. It's likely that that's the one. So that means at this point, 
I, you know, I'm alongside that guy. I started to set up all sorts of transits between marks. I started to look at my depths. And I think what I was doing is going back in a way to the roots of good coastal nav. Like pilotage is when you put aside the chart because you know the area, you've got your pilotage notes, and then you do pilotage actually without the chart to hand. You use lots of other information. What we did in the Navy is that we'd have to do uh, pilotage plans for going into port and you'd spend the whole night like pouring over the charts and getting loads of information together which was then basically decanted down onto a notebook and it'd be like transit these two marks and wheel over 50 degrees and then 30 seconds later you should have uh, this green light showing above this white light wheel over there 50 degrees and you'd have all of this information so you can do that as you're going along if you have a critical eye for it um, and I, it, it brought me back to a kind of navigation which I haven't done for a while because I think we all get so used to just basically um, following the little line on the chart, right? I am this little boat-shaped icon, and I'm just going where the little boat-shaped icon, and then you think, well, I'm going to get a bit close to that sounding there, which could be I could go aground there. Well, no, the little boat will be clear of it, and you start to play boating like it's a video game. Um, doing this um, there was some risk. There was some risk I could make a mistake and put it on the rocks or something. You know, it's, absolutely. It's, uh, but I was hoping that I was good enough at my job to, to not do that and in, indeed didn't do it. So I was. But um, it made me like hypercritical. And actually, the, the other, one of the other missing podcasts is me literally doing that stuff with my lapel mic on and talking through what I can see around me and the sprays getting in my face and I'm having to tack the boat and then I stuffed that up and had to back the boat down and granny tack it round and all this was uh, you know the, the process of and the talking through doing this job and it really did like re-excite my mind to to looking at all that stuff because otherwise you can just end up like driving around basically yeah like it's some kind of game so um, it was with a huge amount of pride that I finally got to the back corner of uh, I think it's called Buzzards Bay and the entrance to the canal bang on time um, and uh, because it was um, it was 4th of July actually it was the 4th of July day uh, there were no trains coming through there is one bridge there which can be a little would be difficult for me to get under if the the um, the part of the bridge that goes up and down was in anything other than its up uh, position. But it, it was like way up. It had like 130 feet of clearance or something. So through there, but then as I say, you are going with the tide. And the, the memorable thing was the fact that the banks were just lined with so many fishermen. Obviously the amount of uh, fish that must go through there. I don't know what exactly they were fishing for, but literally every 50 feet on the bank for miles and miles and miles were just fishermen, fishermen, fishermen either side. But then the waters in there are all kind of swirling and, and kind of moving. And it's like being in a river. I've done a lot of river, uh, whitewater kayaking, what have you, and river work in rafts and things. And it's like being on a, on a river that's moving at quite a high speed. So if you take your eye off the ball with the hand helming that you're doing, the, the boat can end up at 90 degrees to the course very, very quickly, still zipping east at, you know, four knots. Um, and the autopilot's useless because it is not able to compute the, the changes in course which are occurring relative to the amount of information it's putting into or the amount of effort it's putting into the helm. It thinks, oh, I put the helm over 20 degrees, but the boat does not react as per normal because it's actually being swept along in a, in a stream. But um, incredibly quick transit through there. Um, if you do ever go through there, I would give you this one uh, warning, which is that uh, when you do meet the ocean on the other side and that river disgorges into the ocean, man, it's rough. It's super rough. And my uh, advice would be uh, you want to be 
coming out and as soon as the, the banks of the canal kind of like fade away and you kind of uh, you need to follow the, the shoreline round and get out of that kind of delta area as fast as possible because it's rough as all get out in there and uh, <laughs> the most maybe that's the bit where the uh, three quarters full glass of water would have got uh, thrown around a bit because that that was pretty rough but um, from there you know it's not very far then you're only talking about 40 miles to Boston and that was the last part of it and it was a very very lazy uh, uh, I think it was, I got there in about four o'clock. I probably exited the canal about seven in the morning and I got there about four in the afternoon, but there was hardly any wind. I had to tack up wind to get there and, uh, and finally brought the boat into the marina right in the center of the, um, what's it called? Fan Pier, uh, right in the center of downtown Boston. And of course, uh, uh, the very happy owners, Andrew and Jess, were there to to welcome me, which was masks on, which was which was fantastic. So it was a very very enjoyable trip. I think the takeaways for me are um, I need to get myself excited about uh, multi hulls and start looking at that as a possible choice for me. I um, would also uh, say that. Um, uh, that it does start to make me think like I wonder if I could use my open 60 as a cruising boat like <laughs> is that a thing like for me doing that like if you had an electric winch that could help you put the mainsail up after that like everything else is pretty much uh, easy um, I've also learned that you don't have to be a hard ass. You can have a fridge on a boat. Like, that's my big takeaway. Like having a cold drink when you're hot is awesome. Like, and having butter and things like, so uh, yeah, okay. I, I've learned that all the people out there that sell me going like, we told you so. Yeah, I, I get it now. And Haribo chilled is even better than Haribo not chilled. So that for that alone, I'm going to fit a fridge on everything I own. Um, and then uh, this opportunity to get involved in that kind of nav. And that's, you know, pretty much when you do your yacht master training, that's pretty much what you're doing. You're down below inside the, uh, or at the nav station, inside the cabin, unable to go on deck. And you have to nav the boat from below with no GPS using depth soundings and uh, sightings of buoys and bearings and all that kind of stuff. So it's not uh, in any way an unusual way of going at it. And I would challenge people to get out on the water and do that. Like it's, you know, if you've got, a chart plotting system, you can, I don't know quite how you do that, like disconnect the antenna, I suppose, or just use a paper chart. Let's, don't, don't do it the way I did it. <laughs> or use an iPad that's got Navionics on it, but you know, as we know, Navionics is not going to work on an iPad unless it's got a, a GPS unit in there. And just try and use those skills, you know, that coastal navigation skill. Yeah, we're in the electronic era, absolutely. But when, you know, things come to pass and things are not exactly the way we're expecting them to be, you have to have those skills to fall back on. And the, the feeling of completion and the feeling of um, excitement and, and discovery and a little bit of risk maybe and, and just, you know, that's what would have come through on that uh, that uh, podcast had I been able to share it with you. I, I can remember thinking, God, I must sound like the guy that's commentating at the at a horse race or at the crashing of the the Hindenburg or something. Like I was super excited. I was right in that zone and, and doing my job and really enjoying it in a very visceral and uh, and real way. So you know, get out there and, and learn these skills. And um, if you haven't been on multi holes before, go go on a multi hull. <laughs> it's very much worth it. Okay, so that's the end of that story. I think I will come back to that. I'll see if we can't get Andrew on the podcast. I'm going to get into doing a few more interviews and talking to some wonderful people I know in the industry, professionals and, uh, and amateurs alike, and people have got amazing projects going on and, and, and bring other voices into this. So it's not just mine. So we've got a little bit of um, diversity here. And I think doing those kind of uh, broadcasts, uh, uh, outside broadcasts, so to speak, uh, from the boat, I, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was like, you know, it's right in the, right in the, the, the vortex there. That's what it's all about. 
Um, a quick update on the uh, the um, Open 60 project. We're getting close, getting very close to getting on the water. I have been still a bit flummoxed by uh, finances with getting the boat onto the water. I'm just at the point now where I'm about... 3,000 Canadian dollars off being able to launch, and that's because um, at the yard fees, like it's, it's one of these things as always, when Spartan was running and we were doing things before COVID, the cost of keeping these boats is not an issue, it's just an operational cost of the, of the company. But when you're suddenly not doing any work, and in fact trying to hunker down and keep uh, solvent so that you can provide the things you promised the next year, which is what we're doing, um, you know, even 3,000 bucks to pay for the uh, yard fees is, is a tricky one. So with the, um, the fee that I was, uh, you know, uh, able to, to get for doing the work in the last couple of weeks, we've got everything else sorted out. But Falcon is due to go on the water in the next, uh, next week or next week if I can get it sorted out. And I've been very, very lucky. And well, I've put some work in as well, but very lucky now that the um, uh, Nova Scotia, developed Nova Scotia, the Waterfront Development Corporation is the way of describing it, although they've recently changed their name to Develop Nova Scotia. But that's the uh, Crown Corporation here in Nova Scotia, which uh, deals with all the waterfront properties. And, and uh, they've got behind me and they've offered me free dockage uh, here in Lunenburg. And they're actually gonna get their communication and media team to kind of come behind what I'm doing a little bit. Um, the boat now I've been, uh, the last project I was engaged in is painting the interior. I've not been able to go down to the boat because of the fact I'm in quarantine. So I've been doing some other jobs with equipment, which I pre-positioned at the house for me to be able to work on when I got back. But within, by Monday, which is like four or five days away for me now, I'll be able to go to the boat. So I'm going to finish up uh, tidying up the interior. And then if the money's uh, able to come through for the uh, for launching the boat, then the boat will go into the water, and then the boat will be alongside in Lunenburg here in Nova Scotia, branded up in blue and white with Nova Scotia down the side of it. And then, you know, there's still a big financial hurdle to get over to really make this happen. I've um, been looking at all possible ways of getting new rigging onto the boat, and I'm actually very confident that we can build the rigging for the boat for this Open 60 using pre-stretched <laughs> SK99. Um, and, and, and build it for a fraction of the cost of buying uh, brand new Zylon rigging from, uh, from someone like Future Fibers or, uh, you know, there, there are ways that we can drop the cost, but the big financial hurdle ahead of me is to get the sails sorted out and get the rigging sorted out. Um, the hull is good, the boards are good, the keel's good, the engine's good, the electronics are good, the communications is pretty much there, the aesthetics is good, the branding's good. Um, we, we've got a lot of it in place, but it's, it's a question now of like how exactly are we going to get over the hump of what is a 50,000 euros, so it's like 70,000 uh, Canadian, and then probably another 30 or 40 to get the uh, new mainsail. All of the head sails, all of the spinnakers are fine. The mainsail I've got has been reconditioned and is, is like good enough. I would go with it if I had to, but it is 16 years old. And it's Cuban fiber, which is like, will be around, you know, with cockroaches and Keith Richards at the, at the come the apocalypse. But it's a big ticket item. But, um, you know, you've got to commit to something in life. In the end, you've got to stick your flag in the sand. You've got to say, this is what I want to do. And, you know, it's only just yesterday I got another bloody emergency message on my phone saying that some idiot was out and about in um, Bridgewater close to where I live. He stabbed a police officer and actually a canine unit as well. I, I believe the police officer and the dog are actually okay. But our province here in Nova Scotia just keeps getting hit with this, like, 
crap of these and I'm, I'm sure a lot of it is to do with the fact that people are stressed by what's happening with covid and lockdown and the financial repercussions and the emotional repercussions of i get it but you know for the province as a whole and for atlantic canada it's like we need something positive to look at and i really really hope that this this thing of going attempting this uh, round the world record is going to be something which catches people's attention and we can get a sponsor that can come in and jump on that uh, rigging and kind of make it happen but um in the shorter term yeah i've got to get that uh, three thousand dollar bill sorted out which i'll be trying to do whatever it is i can do like sell the silver or whatever it is but um yeah, if you want to buy an MGB Roadster, uh, I'm going to sell that. I'm going to do whatever it is I can do to get that boat on the water and do this thing that I believe in. Um, I think I've got the right boat for it. I've I had a lot of time to think about it while I was at sea. I'm up for it. I'm energized for it. I'm, I'm training for it. i have uh, getting my head screwed on, actually doing some therapy, trying to get ahead of what's going to happen when I get back because you have to kind of become someone different. And um, more and more in the last 10 years, I've realized that it's basically like PTSD from those kind of events in our lives. And we need to recognize it as such that we can move forward. So I don't want to come back and be awful to myself or to other people and like trying to now front load how that's going to happen. So really committing to it. Um, and uh, yeah, I've got to say, I'm super excited to get Falcon back on the water. And the good thing is then that I've got loads of fodder to kind of get through with the podcast and with the YouTube stuff. Um, it is very difficult to chart exactly what people are into what they're listening for what uh, they're in, you know, but i think if we spread it out and get a few more people's voices into the podcast if the things i'm talking about are up to date like this story now and relevant and, and here and and things that are happening and being on the boat will be exactly that i think we've got a very interesting couple of months to go but you know we are approaching august the first it does actually feel hideously like the last time i went solo around the world which was i actually started that project on august the first and i had to be in la rochelle by the 10th of um october um and we had <laughs> eight weeks basically to get the boat ready and it's like okay the boat is pretty ready it's not quite as bad as it was last time and obviously i do know the boat it's the sister ship of the one I had last time. Like I've got a lot of experience with these boats and Volvo 60s and everything else. Like it, it feels a lot more competent this time. But it's like, oh, it's August the first, and you did say you'd leave on the third of October to go to Europe to get ready for the start. So it's like, mm, it's kind of like ground rush now. It's like all feeling like it's really going to happen. But uh, the website that explains all of this in more detail will be online soon. That was uh, scheduled to get going at the beginning of August. And uh, if you haven't heard it before, I'm going to be going for the West Around the World record. It's uh, presently set in 2004 by Jean-Luc Vandenheed uh, in a bespoke 85-foot aluminum sloop called Adrienne. Um, it's set at 122 days and change. Um, he did 27,000 miles around the world and uh, had a, an average uh, VMG of a, about, I think it was 9.2 was his average VMG around the world. His velocity made good. So my idea is that uh, the Open 60 I have is a lot lighter. It's just as tough and I can get up and down the Atlantic quicker. And if I could match Jean-Luc Vandenheide in the uh, Southern Ocean upwind, I would be and, uh, you know, so proud of myself to be able to match someone who is a, a colossus in sailing. But I just have this feeling that I can get up and down the Atlantic faster than the 33-ton Adrienne when Falcon has a bigger sail area and only weighs nine tons. So game is on, and I'm doing it for the province of Nova Scotia to promote the province of Nova Scotia and to try and build 
a positive thing in a in a province which has been very hard hit in the last six months by a lot of a lot of bad things that happened even above above and beyond uh, COVID nineteen. So, an exciting project, and we're like nearly there. So, um, any great ideas of uh, <laughs> if you know where there's three thousand bucks of treasure buried, I've got my spade ready. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's all happening, and I'm I'm kind of back in the chair now. You'll understand that I was like a bit down basically by the fact that you know five hours of recordings and pretty unique situations had gone out the window um but uh i actually recorded this like literally four times today and got halfway through and just ugh, stopped it's like it, it sucks the juice right out of you when something you're trying to do you know falls apart in your hands but um like the poem you stoop and build it out with all that worn out tools and uh and, and here we are we've got through an hour and a half and uh <laughs> if you're still awake <laughs> It's time to come to an end of another one. So as always, I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound and keeping the people around you smiling and happy and positive. And I very much look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.